When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hang Up and Listen is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible offers more than 150,000 audiobooks, all available for listening on your smartphone, tablet, and desktop. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash hangup. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of April 14th, 2014. On this week's show, we'll talk about Bubba Watson's second Masters win in three years and whether the tradition, unlike any other, is actually changing with the times. We'll also discuss a spate of Tommy John surgeries in baseball and why the game still hasn't figured out how to keep pitchers healthy. Finally, we'll be joined by Chris Beam of The New Republic to talk about his story, Year of the Pigskin, my hilarious, heartbreaking, triumphant season with the American Football League of China. My compatriot, Stefan Fatsis, is out this week for spring break, and I can only assume that he's now shotgunning a beer in Panama City, wearing a Zelmo's Do It Better t-shirt. Yelling, woohoo! <laughs> Stefan with it with his woohoos. Woohoo! Joined as always by Slate's Mike Pasca. You do a pretty good woohoo, Mike. Woohoo! Without the woohoo, no one would have fun. Woohoo! 
Woohoo is like the bungee jumping of sounds. Like if you can't uh, tell it to someone else, it's not worth doing. What do you think the cause and effect is there? Do you think the woohoo causes fun or is a... Mm -hmm. Woo causes, who is the effect? (laughs) Who lays it down? Who delivers? Filling in for Stefan, it's returning Hang Up and Listen champion, Johnette Howard. (laughs) I hope you're not wearing your uh, green jacket, though. Jenna, no, no, no. Like... You, only, you can't take it off the premises the year after you won, so I don't have mine on today. Okay, good. She is toting a mini butler cabin around there. <laughs> is it made of gingerbread? Because that sounds delicious. <laughs> it's got pimento cheese inside. Yeah. Johnette, you are a columnist for ESPN.com and ESPNNewYork.com, and we're uh, glad to have you with us. Uh, happy to be here. So a couple uh, news items before we begin. Uh, we need a new intern for the summer. So if you're in D.C., it's a D.C. deal, and you can work roughly 10 hours a week, Mondays, a little research on the weekends, uh, send us an email at hangup at slate.com. Uh, there's a small stipend attached as well, uh, D.C. intern, hangup at slate.com. Uh, the Slate Gab Fest have also been nominated for a 2014 Webby Award in the podcasting category. Uh, you can vote for us, and please do vote for us in the People's Voice Contest. Uh, we need all of you to vote. All of you. Even you. Guy walking his dog. Uh, if we're going to beat NPR, the BBC, etc. If you'd like to vote, go to slate.com slash webby. Vote for us. Listen to the rest of the show with a clean conscience. That's slate.com slash webby. And you spell webby, W-E-B-B-Y. If you go to slate.com slash some other spelling of webby, God only knows where you'll end up. We also need you not to vote for the BBC NPR. <laughs> Well, I mean, you can if they're like, if we're second and they're eighth, go ahead. Well, if you vote for them, just vote for us more times, Mm. multiple times, unless that's not allowed, in which case don't do that. All right. Let's uh, talk about the masters. Uh, Someone, probably Dan Jenkins, he claims it was him, invented the saying that the masters doesn't begin until the back nine of Sunday. If that was the case, this year's tournament was very, very boring. After a four shot swing on holes eight and nine, Bubba Watson went to the back nine with the lead over Jordan Spieth and wasn't challenged from there. He finished at eight under to win his second green jacket by three shots over the 20-year-old Spieth and Swede. Jonas Blixt, uh, Bubba Watson, does very well at Augusta, hits the ball very hard. They tiger-proofed the course to make it longer because Tiger Woods could hit the ball very far, seemingly not understanding that if you make the course longer, the longer hitters will do better. Yeah, That seems like major logic fail there. Yeah. Um, but Jeanette, what did you think of Bubba's victory? Well, I thought the same thing, that typically that there's such sort of peril and danger on the back nine, and, and to have it kind of bleed away in a two-hole swing dimmed it a little. But he's fascinating to watch for me because he's so different than a lot of golfers, even uh, the long hitters, because, uh, you know, other than Mickelson, I don't I don't know a guy that takes as many chances as he does sometimes, and it was sort of amusing to me afterwards to hear Jordan speak, the, the 20-year-old, talk almost like he was in church about when, when Watson hit that 366-yard drive and they were all not even sure where it landed and they go around the bend and it was in perfect position because uh, I think it made Jordan Spieth sound like a kid that he really is instead of the guy that was battling for the title uh, in his first Masters. But Bubba, to me, is a, is a fascinating guy in golf. I love the fact he's never taken a lesson. I love the fact that he's got the... Uh, the humility to say, you know, how can you believe a guy from Bagad, Florida, this can happen to twice? 
The other thing that's fascinating to me is that he's won only six tournaments, and the Masters comprised two of those six. So it's sort of an a indication of how much the place really, really, really suits him. So here's what we know about Bubba Watson. He went to Waffle House for breakfast compared to Phil Mickelson going to Krispy Kreme, uh, the drive through <laughs> while wearing a green jacket. He owns the original General Lee from Dukes of Hazard. As uh, Jeanette mentioned, he's never taken a golf lesson. Uh, what do you make of this uh, character, Pesca? Well, I would say that probably a lot of people named Bubba go to Waffle House every day. He's just the only one who's won the Masters doing it. <laughs> yeah, he does seem like uh, as much as a golfer can be sort of a down-to-earth people's champion. But here's what I don't understand. And I'm going to chalk 90% of this up to Jim Nance and Nanceism. So after it was over, or, you know, maybe it was on the 18th, Nance was talking about uh, Bubba Watson's, and, and this wasn't the only time he said it, his genius, his creativity, how inventive he is, his creativity. And I was thinking, well, what makes him creative? I think he's a great highly skilled player, really confident and ballsy. You know, he definitely knows what uh, his ability is. But what makes him creative? I mean, I guess you could be creative in golf, especially if you, you know, use clubs no one uses or invent a training technique. I I don't really understand what makes him creative. And so I Googled creative and Bubba Watson, 2012 article by Karen Krause in the Times came up. And it, it again asserted that he was creative, but the creative, it just seemed to be a synonym for resilient Which got me to thinking oftentimes in sports, we ascribe characteristics that aren't actually, you know, analogous to what we, how we talk about them in the real world. Like even, I mean, if you said creativity in sports, people would probably first think of basketball and, you know, amazing acrobatic skills or how a uh, Steve Nash finds the open man. I don't even know if that's creative, but it seems closer to creativity. But maybe, Jeanette, you could fill me in. Why yeah. is this guy creative? Well, I think two things. I think you know, every golfer golfs a course in the pros with a topographical layout of each hole. And so there, there are landing spots that they pick to suit their game or to their abilities or whatever. But the other thing is when you have special skills or the lack of them, you have to rethink the geometry of the course in a way that fits you. And I think that's what they mean when they say creative, is that you apply the fact that you can hit a 366-yard drive at the you know, crucible moment, and that's the way you're going to play that hole when another guy's going to hit 275 and lay up. So, so he's unconventional, but doesn't that speak more to, and that's a good answer, but doesn't that speak more to the limitations of imagination of everyone else who's looking at the course, Jim Nance included? Yeah, I would say it's a limitation <laughs> of the people that cover it, not the, necessarily the golfers. I would um, answer that in a slightly different way. I think that creative in golf is often a synonym for taking risk, and he ends up in places, as Mickelson does where you kind of do need to take a non-standard approach to get the ball on the green. We didn't see that this year because he had such a big lead, but that uh, famous shot at the 10th hole when he won the playoff in 2012 out of the pine straw, the pine straw, Mike. And he, (laughs) he bent the ball like at a crazy angle, like he intentionally hooked it. And I think it's partly because he never had a lesson. He curves the ball a lot. You know, the shortest path in golf is a straight line, except, you know, That's not always the best way to get it to the hole. And Bubba, you know, does not take the straight line. And I think that's, you know, different than many golfers, but perhaps it's just part of his style of play because he does not hit it straight. It's not necessarily the right approach for everyone to take. Right. I get it, you know, and probably Picasso saw the world a little cubist. And so we call it creative, but he was just acting according to his own, you know, self-barometer. Hey, guess what, guys? You did a lot better than uh, Jim Nance in explaining. 
I'm glad to hear that. So um, another thing that interested me was the age of Jordan Spieth. Um, I think his first name is actually 20-year-old, and his middle name is Jordan. And you also had guys over 50. Uh, Fred Couples, I think, was in the top 10 after two rounds for five straight years. Uh, Miguel Angel Jimenez. We got the memo that we had to pronounce the Z as a TH. He uh, did well, too. And I was curious uh, why, maybe, Jenna, you can go first on this one. Do you think that golf allows for such a you know spread in terms of performance and age, 20-year-olds and 50-somethings? My brother-in-law's a surgeon, and he always used to say, get a young surgeon and an old lawyer, you know, because the lawyers know what the old lawyers have seen every trick. And I think somebody like Jimenez qualifies in, in that regard and, and has the kind of swagger that Mike talked about where you, you, you go to a place and you just think, you know, God damn, I'm, I can play here. And, and he does. And, there, and there's a, at the other end, there's a 20-year-old who just thinks, why not? Why not? I, although I have to say, looking at, listening to him talk, Spieth, he, he sounds and acts a lot older than he is. And, and um, it almost seemed to me like he just expected to do that and, and that his age is not something that he thinks about, even if everybody else does. But, you know, I think golf is something that is much about hitting the ball, is managing your nerves and the, and the mental side of it. And I think that's why it allows for the range in performance, because um, if you just took the, the physical attributes of people, it, 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 you know, it often gets nullified. And blixed. Most Swedes like to dress at least partially like the flag, I find. You rarely meet a Swede where you say, really, that guy's from Sweden? And Blixt is right in that category. He's a very Swedish Swede. Maybe it's also the fact that, you know, just like at the end of every year, there's got to be one stock picker who is the best, and we can figure out what his strategy is. But there's got to be, you know, five guys in the lead, and you throw them all in a can, and you shake them up. And, you know, some guys fall apart, and some guys don't have the skills. But the guys that are top five, we could say, oh, this guy was great because he was young, and that guy was great because he was jaded. But I agree with you, Johnette, more than I don't. I, I want to throw that possibility out there. But I think Spieth is a very skilled and ascendant talent and the mental part of it which I derive from his play and also his, you know, somewhat flat affect in uh, interviews. He's, that seems well-suited to success <laughs> in the future on the PGA Tour. He's just boring enough to be a, a tremendous success. Yeah. So <laughs> Spieth's success leads to all these predictions or questions about, is he going to be the next whoever? Is he going to help the popularity of the game? By many different metrics, the sport is declining in popularity. Um, fewer players in Britain, fewer courses in America. Um, ratings were down this year by about a third with Tiger Woods not participating. Phil Mickelson wasn't on the weekend. Masters badges were cheaper um, than they have ever been. And Bubba Watson, for all his man of the peopleness, does not seem like somebody who has really captured people the way that Mickelson did for whatever reason. He's just not as famous as Phil at this stage. Do you think that an individual player, I mean, I guess we have the obvious example of Tiger Woods, but he's kind of a once in multiple generations, or is this um, more of a broad issue that a Jordan Spieth or nobody else can solve, the popularity of golf? Well, I think if you look at the popularity of golf, it's been actually more or less consistent, but for the po Tiger spike. And that doesn't surprise me because as much as there was an opportunity there to make golf a bit more populist and to, even though inherently it's going to be an expensive sport that the wealthy will play in country clubs, and there are exceptions, you know, there are 
decent public courses in cheaper parts of the country, actually. I don't think that there was a real effort to make golf populist. I don't think there was a real outreach effort that uh, did anything back when Tiger was really popular, and it would seem like maybe there was an opportunity to get a bunch of people from all sort of divergent backgrounds to golf. That didn't happen. And the reason it didn't happen is that golfers don't want that, you know? Golfers love the exclusivity of it. Most of them do. And as the country becomes more the situation of have and have-nots, I mean, golf's becoming more expensive compared to what the average person can afford. So, you know, if you don't play a sport, it's very hard to get into a sport, and it seems like But for Tiger, golf's popularity is somewhat capped due to the economic realities of it. Well, the Masters is doing this drive uh, chip and putt championship, which was advertised incessantly on the Masters. And there were actually girls competing. Oh, my God. It was the first uh, female champion ever at Augusta was uh, nine-year-old Kelly Hsu. Mm -hmm. Christine Brennan of USA Today uh, wrote that change might take its sweet time at Augusta. But when it comes, it comes quickly, alluding to that as well as the fact that they're now a handful of uh, women members. That seems like it's giving Augusta a little too much credit as far as I'm concerned. Uh, what do you think, Janet? Yeah, I, I'm going to have to see a lot more. I was amused by the idea that hauling out a few adorable children, you know, they let them on the course for years on the par three, you know, before the tournament starts too, and it didn't change the world. It still took forever for the women members to get in and and everybody's still under lock and key nobody can talk and and you know there's still let's not forget only two women it's not like the floodgates have rushed open and 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 people are um joining at will so i i hope she's right but i need to see more from a place that has sort of been so historically discriminatory in so many ways that um when it's convenient for them to say it's all over it's all over immediately i i, I don't think it's undergone that quickly a, a culture change I recall when there were stories about challenging the fact that they had no women members and the and the magazines were in the press room. They were removed from the press room by the people running the tournament. So I hope that it keeps going the way it's going, but they still have a long way to catch up. And if you'll allow me to go on my annual rant against the way that CBS broadcasts the Masters, I was thinking this year that it's really the most successful marketing campaign in sports history, the way that the Masters has recruited this broadcast partner to portray the tournament as basically nothing but azaleas and fathers and sons and history. And the way that CBS capitulates to this image, you know, they have had two broadcasters kicked off at Augusta's behest for uh, Jack Whitaker calling the gallery a mob instead of patrons, and Gary McCord saying that the greens were bikini waxed. CBS just allowed the masters to kick them off the broadcast. But the reason I say it's a successful marketing campaign is that everyone else in the media talks about the masters this way too. It's all about the tradition and you know the beauty and the pageantry, and people just don't talk about the masters like it's a sporting event. I would just say that that is a rant unlike any other. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mike. (laughs) Our sponsor this week is Audible. It's an internet provider of spoken audio entertainment unlike any other. With our special offer, you can get one of Audible's more than 150,000 titles for free. And this week I have chosen a thematically inappropriate book. It's uh, the new John Calipari biography co-authored with Michael Sokolov. Is there a connection between Calipari and the Masters, Mike, that I'm missing here? 
Well, Jordan Spieth would be too old to uh, be recruited by <laughs> Kalapari. We were just talking about this book. We but it could just... be one and done. I forgot to mention that. If Spieth had gotten the tutelage of whoever Texas's golf coach is, then That's he wouldn't right. have folded on the back nine. He should not be allowed to play. He needs to mature. He does. All right, back to Kalapari. I read an excerpt in uh, the Wall Street Journal in which Kalapari is very anti-NCAA. So I'm pro-Kalapari, the enemy of my enemy and all of that. And thanks to Audible's great offer for Hang Up listeners. If you're in the United States and you've never tried Audible before, you can get one free audiobook if you sign up for a free 30-day trial. Get that audiobook in the 30-day trial by signing up at audiblepodcast.com slash hangup. That's audiblepodcast.com slash hangup. And it is read by Anthony Davis? <laughs> it is read by Chuck Montgomery, who I think was uh, one of Calipari's famed zero and done players. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, Frank Job, the orthopedic surgeon who first transplanted a tendon from elsewhere in a pitcher's body into that player's elbow, died last month at the age of 88, 40 years after Job invented Tommy John surgery, named after the Dodgers pitcher, who was the procedure's guinea pig. A remarkable one-third of major league pitchers have had an ulnar collateral ligament repaired at least once, including such young stars as Steven Strasburg and Matt Harvey. In an age when the game is overflowing with enlightened analysts who studied how baseball is played from every possible angle, it seems surprising that pitchers are still getting injured at such an incredible rate and that the surgery uh, remains more popular than ever. Uh, Mike, should we be surprised that there has not been any kind of abatement in Tommy John surgery? There have been 12 just since the start of spring training. Not only Tommy John injuries, but all of pitchers' arms, I think, is one of the worst things about baseball. You just can't put up a poster of Brandon Webb if you're a 12-year-old in your, ha- in your uh, bedroom and expect him to be a pitcher in two years. I mean, there have been a couple examples, Felix Hernandez, Justin Verlander, but these pitchers are going down left and right. I think that the surgery both enables this and also causes the problems because, you know, it used to be that if you had the injury, that's it, you were done. But now you could come back, but maybe come back a little too soon. And the whole idea about coming back as strong as ever, I think there has been some evidence to puncture that. And I just think the health of pitchers' arms and the stress they put on their arms, and I'm not sure as to why, though there do seem to be a couple really good reasons, is fundamentally hurting baseball. I don't know if it's hurting its... I think it's hurting its popularity. I don't know if it's hurting the amount of money it rakes in. And that's one of the things that is getting in the way of actually, you know, trying to address this issue. Because I think if Major League Baseball were to give some, you know, reasonable dictates to its feeder systems and the college baseball, maybe pitchers' arms would be healthy. But since Major League Baseball is making so much money, and I don't know that they really care that you can't have pitchers and expect a decent pitcher to have a seven-year career, so I don't know if anything will ever change. But yeah, I think it's kind of a horrible blight on uh, baseball. Well, and I, I think that they make such a huge investment in pitchers' that they are extra cautious because of the technology. And if they see the slightest tear, then it does become this conundrum. Should we do it now? Should we do it later? And and I think just the technology has enabled more people to know they have a problem and get get it fixed, even if before they might have just let it roll. And Matt Harvey was actually a little bit of an outlier in that regard, the Mets pitcher, when he actually chose to wait a bit. And everybody had a big debate over what, you know, what was he doing? Was he wasting precious time? What was it going to take so long? But there is this compulsion to try to figure this out. And, and when you read experts that have studied it, it seems that they advocate both ends of the spectrum. They either need to work less or they need to work more. 
they throw too much when they're young and then they they don't throw enough and 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 there's this careerist approach and and you know we should go back to the old days where they rub mud on things and the guy I, I tend to believe most in all the noise is Nolan Ryan because he did both he he threw a lot but he was also a workout freak at a time when a lot of pitchers weren't to the extent that he was and sometimes I think when you look at a guy like Justin Verlander or some of these other guys they train so much all year round that there's no way to build up the ligaments in your elbow like there is to train so you can leg press a thousand pounds so you can pitch nine innings or throw a hundred miles an hour and I think that the reason the tendons are are popping is because they lack the other part which is what Nolan Ryan has always said is that the more you throw the stronger you'll be and the only way you can make your ligaments and things stronger is by throwing and if I had to guess you know, somewhere down the line, I, I tend to believe him because he, he was on both sides of the spectrum. He's been an advocate for this for a long time, but the system is too set up for him to make much of an impact. He tried when he ran the Rangers to get the guys in the minors to throw longer, but by then they had already had their pasts and there was not enough of a bandwidth of time to really have the effect he hoped for. Well, I would push back on that a little bit. And I think we should be clear that if there was an obvious answer to this, then we wouldn't have a third of pitchers um, having the surgery. But the thing that I find most convincing is actually from Glenn Fleissig, who is a biomechanics expert who has studied this a lot. And he notes that ligaments and tendons, like you mentioned, Jeanette, you can't really strengthen them. But pitchers are a lot stronger than they were in Nolan Ryan's era. Nolan Ryan was an outlier for any era, given that he pitched well into his 40s and pitched so many innings. And you have more guys now throwing harder than ever in the history of baseball. You have all these guys throwing 95, 100. And if you have the muscle power and the training or whatever you need to throw the ball that hard, but your ligaments and tendons aren't stronger, they seem to be breaking. And I think the fact that Tommy John surgery is, if it, and you're right, Mike, it doesn't make you better than you were before the injury. But if it is a solution that works pretty well, then I think the incentives in baseball are often to just have guys throw really hard, then have the surgery, and then they can come back. You know, right, right. yeah, no, I, I I, would not take advice from, I mean, I take advice from Nolan Ryan, but the fact that Nolan Ryan is the hardest throwing guy and he was into his 40s, I mean, this is like taking advice from how to, you know, eat from the top of a tree from a giraffe. Wait a minute. He'd give good advice. That's a terrible analogy. It's like <laughs> it's like the one guy who could do it, the one, the word you use was outlier, and that's why I worry about it. I think that Joe Madden and others... It's like to- taking advice from the world's tallest man about eating from the top of a tree. That's right. Here's how you eat from the top of the tree. That's right. Eating and, and you know, shoving giraffes out of the way. We got to work giraffes into it. This is my point. Joe Madden, others, not just Joe Madden, point to the fact that in youth leagues, but especially in college, these guys throw way too much. We've talked about this on the show. Guys routinely going out and wanting to win for their team or whatever and throwing, you know, 140 pitches in the College World Series, stuff that's never done with adults on the professional level. That's got to take its toll. But the big thing is I think just that pitch to pitch, it's a crazy amount of stress. And even if it's like whatever percent, I don't know if this is the sort of thing that you could gauge that way, but even if every pitch is only, you know, 8%, 11% more than when Walter Johnson was pitching or whatever, you know, over the course of a season and a career, it just kills you. You know, I went back to the list of the Cy Young winners. Maybe I've done this on the show. I just picked a random year, 2010. That's not that long ago. The NL Cy Young vote, Roy Halladay, 
out of baseball. Adam Wainwright's still good. Abaldo Jimenez. Now, Abaldo Jimenez, third in the Cy Young that year. He was 26 years old. He was a rising star. He's reclaiming his career, but, you know, he had a 5-4 ERA one year. Adam Wainwright has had Tommy John surgery, by the way. Yeah. Then you go down. I mean, Tim Hudson is still there. Josh Johnson. Roy Oswalt was next on the list. He's done. Brian Wilson was next on the list. That guy's done. Tenth on the list of Cy Young voters. The guy who won the Cy Young recently. Tim Lincecum, he's done. So all these guys who you're saying to yourself, oh, these guys will be pitchers for a while. They're just not. And it's not like that with if you look at, you know, the top ten. I was looking at pitcher war statistics. And they're totally different from NBA war statistics. Those guys can keep playing. And in the NFL, even though we speak of the short careers, quarterbacks play year after year after year. And pitch. 50% of them, if they're great this year, in two years, they'll just be hurt and uh, either out of baseball or struggling to come back from a terrible injury. I think the one segment of people that you should not trust on this issue are old school newspaper columnists. So (laughs) Joel Sherman of the New York Post suggests that performance enhancing drugs and increased testing for them has led to an increasing frequency of injuries. T.J. Quinn, who's done very much reporting on this, responded on Twitter by noting that tendons and ligaments don't have any kind of hormone receptors where performance-enhancing drugs would have an impact. I guess the idea there is that bigger muscles have the effect on tendons and ligaments, as discussed earlier. There's also the idea that pitchers aren't throwing enough, that pitchers are throwing too much. Then there's the travel team aspect where you have young kids throwing a lot, but would that necessarily manifest itself when you're, you know, a young major leaguer? I just come back to the fact that it's surprising to me, given the amount of analytical rigor in the game. And you had the Oakland A's looking into like prehab and having guys try to strengthen before they got hurt. And none of it seemed to work. That just seems surprising to me. Well, and there is sort of a latent wisdom to pitch counts because if you don't use a guy, you can't get hurt, right? So if you you do limit people to 100 pitches – you do just statistically decrease the probability that they're going to get hurt. I think that's why, rather than than ponder all these mysteries of the universe, these teams just stick with that above all. And they don't care if it looks unpopular when they're coming out to, you know, yank a guy in the fifth inning or tell Strasburg his season's over when they're headed to the playoffs. I think that they err on the side of the safest outcome and worry about the rest later and take the hit publicity-wise. Yeah, but in the era of the pitch count, there were 36... Tommy John surgery is in 2012. Right, so. but what I'm saying is they, they don't solve it if they let them pitch on. And so, you know, if it, it just makes sort of common sense. If you don't use a guy, he can't get hurt. I, I, I honestly think that's part of it. And also a lot of relievers get hurt, too, and pitch count isn't an issue. Maybe frequency of use is. I don't think it's number. I think it's stress on the body. And if you look at a guy like, I mean, all the experts who know biomechanics point to specific hurlers like Chris Sale, and they just say, look at his arm angle when he's throwing. This guy is definitely going to get injured. And so far, everyone I've ever noticed that they, they said that about. And with Strasburg, there was a question whether his W was that inverted, whether he looked really bad doing it. And and some people said, no, it's good mechanics. So I'm just talking about the guys where they say, this guy is a time bomb. As far as I know, they've always exploded. Now, maybe that's because almost every pitcher always gets hurt. But, you know, so far as Chris Sale's doing great, I'm, you know, I'm interested to see if in the next three years he remains injury-free. Maybe he'll be the one guy. But when you bend your elbow like that and you throw that off and you're going to get hurt. Well, R.A. Dickey was born without an ulnar collateral ligament, and he's been successful in the major league. So maybe the solution is to have 
surgeons remove the UCLs from pitchers and teach them how to throw <laughs> knuckleballs. Well, you joke, but, you know, Ari Dickey and his teammate Mark Burley are the slowest throwers, and Ari's not having a great year. I mean, it's really the knuckleball is uh, a, a, an odd pitch, and it's a strange mistress, and you can't rely on it. But, you know, Burley's one of the slowest throwers, and he has excellent placement like Maddox did, and uh, I think he's fourth on the list of uh, active pitchers among wins. And uh, during a game, he recently, I think, struck out 11. He's only had double-digit strikeouts twice in his entire career, and one was a couple, one was a week and a half ago. And uh, during the game, they noted, you know, this is a guy, if he showed this stuff in high school, would never get drafted. Well, there you go. The guy who's fourth in the league in wins would never have gotten drafted. I think teams need to start, you know, trying to get people other than the flamethrowers, maybe with the MPH tattooed on their arms, trying to get them into camp, you know, seeing what you could do in the fields of location and savvy and movement on your ball as opposed to just velocity. And I'd love to see Mark Burley have 84.1 tattooed on his forearm. You know, I think that's his average fastball speed. We need speed limits. Speed limits, Yeah, Matt. I don't think that's going to happen. No. <laughs> yeah, I'm the scout who comes and say, I got this guy. He throws 81. Yeah, I get a, I get a raise. Exactly. He's going to be very, very healthy. All right. For our last topic, we're going to discuss football in China. Every American sports league has dreams of expanding to the Far East and extracting a whole lot of money from China's mostly unexploited market of 1.3 billion people. As Chris Beam reports in The New Republic, American football has now come to China. But what's surprising is that this eight-team league sprung up without any assistance from the NFL. Beam spent a year embedded with the Chongqing Dockers and their American ex-Michigan Wolverine coach and players with nicknames like Rock, Metal, and Fat Baby. It's a great sports story, and it should not surprise you that it has been optioned to become a Hollywood motion picture. It's also a fascinating look at how Chinese and American culture intersect. Joining us now from Beijing is the author of the story and my former colleague, Chris Beam, now a staff writer at The New Republic. How's it going, Chris? It's going great. Thanks, Josh. Sure. And um, what's fascinating about this story, as alluded to, is the fact that while American football is not really popular in China, it seems to have really caught on with this group of players that you mentioned and really sort of like spark something in their soul. Can you explain uh, what the players told you about why they love American football so much? The reason that a lot of these young Chinese men found out about football in the first place is through American movies. Like, they've all seen Rudy. They've all seen, like, Any Given Sunday. A lot of them have seen The Longest Yard, which is, to them, the Adam Sandler remake rather than the original from the 1970s. So for them, I think football has always been a really dramatic, cinematic, cool thing, because that's how they, they first encountered it. But when I asked them, the most common response I got for why they play football is they say that it's man. Man as in manly. You know, big guys wearing pads crashing into each other is sort of a, a masculine thing that they can identify with. And I thought that was interesting because, you know, if you're in China, you look at the billboards, you look at the TV ads, and the the male beauty standards you see are a lot more sort of skinny with like poofy Korean pop star hair. It's not the sort of Dwayne the Rock Johnson body type that you see. You have one of the guys saying that what they want is what women want is a skinny guy, but what they really want is a rich guy. 
Yeah, and and what's interesting about that is that you know football for a lot of these guys, I think, is a form of conspicuous consumption. I mean, if you look at the kind of guys who were attracted to this team, they're not really poor and they're not really rich. They tend to fall into this sort of middle income category where they have a steady income, they have a steady sort of young family life, and they are really the first generation of Chinese to have a lot of free time and have a little bit of disposable income to spend on pads, which you have to import from either Hong Kong or the U.S. It's not cheap. And, you know, if you're talking about, you know, ways to attract the ladies, I think for them, football, that's definitely a factor. I had a question about the fact that their entry point for the sport was through movies, because in in reading the piece, which, you know, I agree, I just thought was wonderful, one of the things that struck me were the the people that were attracted to the team seemed to sort of resemble the characters in the movies more than athletes, that they were self-selecting based on character rather than athletic ability. And I wondered if that was true, because when you did the accounts of the games and how they went, they didn't go all that well. And I wondered if if these were more guys that sort of had a dramatist view of their own lives rather than guys that had an athletic dream. Oh, definitely. I mean, as you can probably tell from reading the piece, like these guys aren't stellar athletes, um, but they do really care about the game. And I think that's what brought them together in the first place, is that they'd seen these movies. One of the players, one of the founding members, started an online chat group where they all got together and talked about football and then floated the idea of playing. The fact that, you know, exercise is good for you and the game is fun and they love it is is a big part of it. But um, I think that the actual physical activity of it is sort of beside the point. What they really get into is the cultural associations of, of football, like the way that it's connected to American culture. And a big part of it is that, whereas in the U.S., if, if you play football, that doesn't necessarily make you different from other people around you. In China, if you play football, it makes you extremely different because no one else is doing it. It's this sort of signal to, to everyone around you that, hey, I'm, I'm not doing what everyone else is doing. I'm playing this weird, random sport that if you've heard of, you probably still have no idea how it works. So football, when poorly played, Chris, is probably the worst sport to watch ever conceived by man. Like, even snapping the ball to the quarterback is a skill. You have to, like, throw it backwards between your legs. Just walk us through how horrible this team that you followed was in the beginning and if they improved along the way. The tricky part about it is that the skills that football requires, like throwing, like hitting someone as hard as you possibly can, are just not skills that you acquire playing other sports that are popular in China, such as badminton. So when I talked to the coach, Chris McLaurin, he talked a lot about how these guys just didn't really want to hit each other. That, I think, was the skill that required the most teaching. And even by the end, a lot of the guys still hesitated. You know, whereas in the U.S., if you start playing in middle school, you know, by the time you get to high school and college, you're pretty used to destroying the person in front of you. But for these guys who are already adult men and haven't built up those habits, the sort of uh, bone-crunching hit isn't something that comes naturally. And also, I mean, throwing 
is something that I think American kids take for granted, but is by no means a natural movement. So it took a long time for them to find a quarterback. And in the end, uh, the coach had to play quarterback for a few games just because none of the Chinese guys could really figure out how to do it right. And tell us about the coach. He's a great character. So Chris grew up outside Detroit. He went to a Catholic high school around there where he got into football and became sort of one of the stars of his high school team. Got recruited by Michigan, played four years there, but ultimately had to quit because he he had this shoulder injury that would have required some intense surgery but then ended up doing some interesting things after college. He got a White House internship. He went to London School of Economics and then ended up coming out to China on the Loose Fellowship, where he was placed in Chongqing working at a government-run investment firm. The football team ended up being a totally random coincidence. Uh, one of his colleagues sent him a, a link to a news story that, this football team had just gotten started in Chongqing. And so he went to a practice one day and quickly discovered that these guys needed a coach very, very badly. When they found out that he used to play at Michigan, that he had just arrived in Chongqing with nothing to do, they were just as psyched to have him as he was to be there. And how does he compare physically to the players? I mean, he's you know completely different. He's he's a lot taller. He's built not nearly as big as he was back when he played in college, but he's still a big guy. And so you know when he would do these drills with them, you could see them just sort of shrinking every time uh, he he would run at them with the ball or come to hit them. The, the only way to get these guys to really understand how to you know beat the crap out of other people was for for him to show them himself. You talked a lot in the story about the the cultural changes going on in China and and how generationally these people that are playing football have a lot bigger universe of choices than their parents. And I was curious if you mentioned that they sort of get a lot of feedback and it's kind of cool among their friends, but is is there any pushback associated too with, you called it Americophilia in the story, where maybe there's a generational pushback where it's sort of not cool with some other people that, that they're doing something that's so blatantly American? I don't think there's there's much pushback on that. I think there's more uh, confusion, maybe, uh, among an older generation. You know, their parents, they don't really understand what this sport is about, and you can't really blame them. But most young Chinese people have at least heard of American football, and if they're not interested in that particular American export, they're interested in others, whether it's movies or music. So I don't, I don't think there's much stigma attached to that. One thing you do hear is cited as you know an obstacle for football in China is that parents are worried about their kids getting injured. And that's true to some extent. I talked to some parents who don't want their kids playing because they think they're going to get broken in half and then won't be able to focus on their studies, which is the priority of most kids in China before they get to college. Man, those parents are so screwed up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely true that most kids are raised to focus on academics. It's not like in the U.S. where you go to school in the morning and then, you know, go to soccer practice in the afternoon. Here, until you're 
you know, 17, 18, you're pretty much studying all the time. If you show promise in one sport or another, you might get siphoned into one of these state-run schools, which is where they, they end up fostering the country's athletes. But aside from that, you're mostly going to be studying. So there's just not as much of a culture of casual team sports, organized team sports in, in the way that there is in the U.S. And that really ends up affecting the kind of sports that China excels at. So I was thinking about the idea of this movie and the fact that they were so influenced by movies. And a couple months ago, I was looking at the list of uh, biggest grossing movies all time, and I was comparing what percentage of them, of the big grossing movies, box office came from overseas. And uh, the number one movie that was, I don't know, whatever, top 10, top 20 of all time, with the smallest percent of overseas box office is The Blind Side. And in fact, sports movies don't translate well. So I'm thinking this movie, if it becomes a movie, would be kind of amazing because you have the built-in Chinese tie-in. Although it would have to do the thing where every, that every movie does where this ragtag bunch of upstarts is trying to face this highly qualified, you know, un- unbelievably intimidating other team. And that's what I wanted to get at. Will that have to totally be invented? Like, was there another team that was ever any good that, you know, reasonably stood in the way of the team that you uh, chronicled? I think the closest thing to it is the team from Shanghai that they they faced in the championship. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what was so funny about this story is that the teammates really imagined themselves as being in a movie the entire time. And so that ended up affecting how they framed the story they were telling me, how I framed the story that I was telling, and I'm sure will affect what may now be an actual movie. So it sort of had this meta quality all along. But I think the what makes the Shanghai team, a sort of like amazing movie villain, is that they have a lot more foreigners. It was by no means considered cheating because you were allowed to have foreigners on the field, but it was just seen as less Chinese and then from some people's perspective, maybe less fair. So, Chris, you note that in a country with 1.3 billion people, everything is happening. So it's not surprising that there is a football league. You just followed this one team, so... I don't know if you have any thoughts on whether it seems to you that football could catch on in China. It also strikes me as interesting that it's coming so much after the game was you know, popular in America. Now there are all these concerns about health and football, and now there's a just huge potential market for brain injuries. I wonder if you know there's going to be less concern about that in China, and we'll be kind of tut-tutting just as we do about pollution in China since we had our industrial revolution a long time ago? <laughs> I think that on the question of whether football has a future in China, I think everyone realizes that this is a very long process. You know, if football is going to take off here, uh, it's not going to be for a very long time. I mean, the numbers, the raw numbers are growing fast. The folks at NFL will tell you that, you know, they're growing rapidly every year. But even they are pretty Mm. modest about their overall goals. They say that by the year 2020, they want to be a top 10 sport among Chinese men ages 15 to 24 living in tier one cities in China who say that they're fans of sports. 
So <laughs> that's the most caveat laced sentence a lot of ever. Yeah, but that's still. 85 million people at least, right? <laughs> it's 38 million people, right? Oh, okay. So it's still like a huge market. And that's sort of their point is that even if you're targeting a tiny slice of the Chinese population, that's still a huge, huge number of people. Whether it's going to become a cultural phenomenon here, I think there's massive obstacles, not least the fact that for a sport to really take off in China, it needs government support. And unless American football becomes an Olympic sport, it's almost definitely not going to get government buy-in. All right, Chris, thank you very much. Congrats on uh, the great article and hope to have you back soon when you write about the rise of maybe baseball. That's a <laughs> hopefully, hopefully uh, uh, no, uh, no Tommy John surgeries for uh, the future generation of Chinese pitchers. Uh, anyway, thanks, Chris. Thank you, guys. It is now time for After Balls. We were alluding to how pitchers throw faster now than they ever have. But the man, the legend, who is reputed to have thrown uh, the ball faster than anyone else, not Sid Finch, the fictional Sid Finch, is uh, Steve Dalkowski, who uh, was a pitcher from the 1960s. Wikipedia includes the sentence, some experts believed it went as fast as 125 miles per hour. I'd like to know who these experts are. Wikipedia. These experts, I think, uh, are not the kind of experts that I want telling me about anything, much less baseball speed. But the character Nuke Lelouch in Bull Durham was apparently based on him. He was an alcoholic, never really uh, did anything professionally other than throw the ball hard. But throwing the ball hard, that's something. Mike Pesca, what is your Dalkowski? So every year the uh, there is named an NFL executive of the year. I believe the pro football writers of America give it. Maybe you thought it was John Dorsey of the Chiefs in 2013 or Ryan Grigson of the Colts in 2012. No. The NFL executive of the year every year is the same guy, the same guy who makes the most waves before the draft. He is named anonymous executive. He also goes by unnamed personnel exec. We don't know how executive he is. I mean, if he has an assistant, maybe he's the assistant to the executive assistant or the assistant executive assistant. But now anonymous NFL exec is making huge headlines by calling Jadavian Clowney spoiled and lazy. It all stemmed from an article written by uh, the Times of Trenton's Mark Eckel, which wasn't a terrible article, except he included an, an anonymous quote by someone taking a snipe at Jadavian Clowney, who apparently his workouts were off the charts, and we all saw how great he was in South Carolina, especially two years ago. But here's what the NFL personnel man said. He's spoiled and lazy. He's never worked hard a day in his life. Now all of a sudden you're going to give him a bunch of money and expect him to work hard. I don't see it. He's going to be a high pick, the personnel man said. Some team will fall in love with him, but wait and see. Just wait and see. I just don't think you could count on him. I'm betting the under on him. Well, the sports writers and especially the sports bloggers of America were not betting the under on the anonymous NFL exec. Audibles, which is some sort of SI blog, headline, anonymous NFL exec, Jadavian Clowney, spoiled and lazy. CBS, anonymous NFL exec calls Jadavian Clowney spoiled and lazy. You get it? This is a headline. This is now the headline. And then they link to the actual quotes. Now, a few of these articles, 
decry the practice. A few of them, Mike Florio did a pretty good job of this in pro football talk, talking about the motivations of anonymous NFL exec, talking about how it's a tried and true practice to talk down the guy you want to take. Maybe the anonymous NFL exec who's issuing these calumnies behind a veil, behind a cloak, maybe this guy really loves Jadavian Clowney. But you know what? The original article... I would say that put this guy on the record or just characterize his quotes to give him the carte blanche to assassinate some, you know, 21-year-old character like this to possibly impact, sorry to use the verb impact, but this is how mad I am, to possibly impact Jadavian Clowney's future earnings under the veil of anonymity. I think that's scurrilous. I don't think reporters should do it. And then all the other blog sites that just put it in a headline, they're just going to trade in it. Oh, I want to click on the uh, NFL exec who's trapped. Jadavian Clowney. Like, it's still a person, this is still journalism, and it's a dumbass thing to say. So, this uh, named observer of anonymous NFL execs are calling the entire ecosystem that allows this thing to happen all the time. And even if you describe the ecosystem, like Mike Florio did, maybe make the headline something different than unnamed personnel exec calls Clowney spoiled and lazy. Maybe you know, another round of ridiculous stuff that the media probably shouldn't be reporting on the first place unless you get the guy on the record. It would be funny if it was just one guy. One guy was anonymous. Same guy. Yeah. And that literally <laughs> is his name on his birth certificate. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Johnette, what is your Dalkowski? Uh, I'm thinking of the end of the NBA season and how, once again... All these storylines have come and gone, surged and faded. There have been predictions. There have been um, people anointed and people declaiming who was the front runner at this moment and that. And, and with the season just about over, the San Antonio Spurs just clinched the best record in the West and remain as defiantly boring and inscrutable and wonderfully um, rebellious as ever. Not only to the point that they have results that are humbling people, but people are actually jumping on board and abandoning the the sort of, uh, you know, they're so boring. They're so just fortunate that Tim Duncan fell into the draft. They're so wacky out there in San Antonio benching everybody for a game. And they're starting to to copy everything the way people used to hire coaches because they thought coaching trees worked. Now you see Indiana, when it's at a loss, is sitting its entire starting five and hoping that something's going to work. And, and you see Boston in the years before resting their guys, realizing the end of the season is when you really want to be hitting stride, the same as San Antonio's been doing for 20 years. And you see Popovich, Greg Popovich, the sort of mad genius who nobody can explain because he doesn't come with the slick packaging that, that Phil Jackson did. He doesn't have a cool nickname, and, and people just try to blame it all on his mi- military background instead of thinking maybe the guy's just a genius and, and there's more going on a coaching genius anyway, and, and there's more going on than just he's a little irascible and, and he kind of buggy whips people into playing well, especially the young guys. And then he has the loyalty of the old guys who are just used to him and accept his peccadillos. So it's been fun in a year when the Clippers were supposed to be so cool and, and Indiana was going to upend Miami and uh, Chicago, if Derrick Rose had not gotten hurt again, was going to finally you know, go back to the glory days and, and to see the Spurs just kind of relentlessly relentlessly putting together another double-digit win streak and, and still being around. I don't understand why you don't think Pop is a cool nickname. <laughs> it's after Papa Shot. They did, they, they did name that after him. Well, that's cool. Yeah. Josh, I have a question for you. What's that, Mike? A Dalkowski. Do you have one? I do. I do. Uh, I've been in South Africa 
for the last couple of weeks. Uh, great country, uh, kind of bad history. Apartheid was a horrible, horrible thing. And I went to the Apartheid Museum in Johannesburg, which allowed me to confirm the horrible, horribleness of apartheid. Um, it's a great museum. I learned a whole lot of things that I never knew, including uh, the fact that during the time that South Africa was banned from the Olympics between 64 and 92, they staged the South African Games, which brought the appalling racism of the country to the athletic field. The 1964 Games featured separate competitions on separate dates for whites and blacks, with some white athletes from predominantly white countries invited as well. Some foreign athletes did compete over the years, with their national federations almost always taking pains to point out that they were doing so unofficially without any institutional support. There were some Americans who were involved in this, involved in lawn bowling for some reason, which was in the South African Games. There were AAU athletes who competed in swimming and diving. Um, there was a shooting team. And so there is, unfortunately, an American history here. Um, these games, which will probably not surprise you, uh, did not go off very well. There was an AP story in 1969 reporting that competitors complained about shabby, dirty, and overcrowded accommodations. Uh, the Johannesburg Sunday Express reported that they have so far failed as a spectator spectacle, as a national sports summit, and as a counter to our expulsion from the Mexico Olympics. But the most notable thing, as far as I'm concerned, about the South African Games is an event that is probably the least likely in sports history. It's like the exact opposite of the Chris Beam China football story. This is the thing that is not going to be an inspirational sports movie. If it is, then something has gone terribly wrong. So during one of these South African Games, there was a soccer tournament, a four-team tournament, in which uh, the teams that were competing were representing the four South African races, the whites, the blacks, the coloreds, and the Indians. The whites and the blacks met in the final. And according to a news story at the time, the whites scored a 4-0 upset over the blacks in the final. Now, Mike Pesca, how do you, how do you make an inspirational sports movie out of that? You have to, oh God, you have to make the blacks win and then take over the country and then ignore sports and talk about rugby. In my version, Nelson Mandela scores the winning goal, but there's already Invictus. So I think the right. South African inspirational sports movie market, we've got that covered. So South Africa was banned for the Olympics. They rejoined in uh, 1992 after the referendum to abolish apartheid. They have competed every year since the South African Games are thankfully a distant memory, so distant that I didn't, in fact, know about them until going to the Apartheid Museum. So I will say this. In 1904 in St. Louis, the St. Louis Olympics had all manner of competition where they were trying to determine, you know, which of the races were better. And we talked about this, right? Yeah. They made Eskimos pole vault or something to see what would happen. But the point I would make is that was 1904. That was 1904. Yeah. Um, all right. We love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and listen in iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangup and listen. Thanks to Johnette Howard for filling in for Stefan. Our intern is Casey Butterly. Our producer is Mike Volo. And the executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Thank you.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.